Hello and welcome to Future Says. I'm your host, Sean Lang, and I spent my entire career implementing complex data analytics software for leading banks, automotive institutions, and engineering firms. Brought to you by Altair, a global leader in computational science and intelligence, Future Says explores how simulation, data, AI, and high-performance computing are transforming the world around us. In each episode, I talk with some of the industry's leading experts to hear how they're using data to spark the world's next generation innovations and shape the future of industries around the globe. With that, let's dive in. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Richard Benjamin onto today's episode. Richard is Chief AI and Data Strategist at Telefonica. In the past, he's held multiple executive positions at Telefonica and was the founder of their Big Data for Social Good department. He's also spent time as Chief Data Officer at AXA, and alongside his roles in business, he holds a PhD in Cognitive Science. He has co-founded the Spanish Observatory for Ethical and Social AI. He sits on an expert group within the European Commission, and he's also the author of the books The Myth of the Algorithm, Tales and Truths of Artificial Intelligence, as well as one which is being released this summer, which is going to be called A Data-Driven Company. So we have certainly a lot to talk about, Richard. But firstly, tell me a bit more about your current role. It's a data and AI strategist is relatively novel, I would say. So what's generally involved in this? And is it something you'd like to see more often within the space? Yeah, thank you, Sean. And um, hello, everybody. Uh, thanks for having me here in uh, what will probably be a very interesting conversation. The importance of this role is that it's looking into the future. It's not about what's relevant today, but what is going to be relevant in the future. And that's why it's a strategic role and within the AI and data space where actually a lot of things are happening today. It doesn't matter how the role is called. This was a role, I, I, the title I liked. But anyway, the importance is that it's future looking because it's outside the radar of the commercial teams. And otherwise, it will not happen. Or if it happens, you are late as a company. Now. So in my specific case, uh, there are two trends that are very important for the future. One is data sharing. So it's not only about doing your business as usual. In this, in our case, it's telecommunications business. But a telco generates a huge amount of data that as such has value, both commercially and both for society. For instance, we currently share data in an anonymized aggregated way of our network, mobility data with the European Commission, together with 16 other operators. Uh, so the European Commission understands better how the crisis uh, develops and how the mobility restrictions impact people, impact the economy, and of course, uh, the propagation of the virus. Yeah. So that's a space in the European data strategy that's going to explode in the coming years, but little companies are actually preparing for that. That's one area that's very important for us. And the second area is related to the responsible use of artificial intelligence and big data. So it's not only about commercial opportunities. Of course, it is. But there are also aspects that you need to look at from the beginning. If not, companies launch many AI applications as quickly as possible. And then sometimes negative side effects may happen, as we've seen a lot in the press. You saw the press. This algorithm discriminates against the Deliveroo riders and cameras discriminate against black people, etc. So you can prevent those things, uh, but you need to change the way you work. Yeah? And that's also very important for the future. So those are the two things that I'm currently focusing on. 
So does that position sit alongside the chief data officer focusing on sort of responsible AI? Is this something more companies should adopt to have enough focus within these areas? Well, it doesn't really matter where it is. I think this is still new. So it's more a people thing than a organizational thing. But it's important that the role is there. So you could sit within a business unit that looks at the value of data as a, from a business perspective. But you can also sit in the chief data officer organization where you sit closely to the data, etc. And actually, my role has been moving around the company, yeah? but the role remains the same. So then talk to me, Richard. I think from your bio and your introduction, we're speaking about industry. We're speaking about sort of academia, nonprofit organizations. I think if anybody knows the wild and wonderful applications of artificial intelligence in the world today, it, it could be yourself, Richard. So can you tell us a bit more about the most interesting applications of AI you've seen in an organizational context, but also within a wider societal perspective? If you look at the commercial or an enterprise context, then there are, I would say, even say hundreds of use cases that you can do. Yeah, In big categories, you can speak about business optimization. So how can you do more uh, with the same or with less? So in our context, it's all about optimizing how we manage and deploy our mobile or fixed networks, which is a huge investment. So we can optimize that and provide the same service with less investments. But you also have the customer side where you can try to improve the relations with the customers to understand better the customers, to serve them better, and also to have a better interaction with them yeah? using, for instance, digital assistance, or voice recognition, um, etc. So those are two applications that are widely used in the in the organization in the in the business context. Yeah? Then for the more advanced companies, there is the second part that you can actually turn your data if you are in certain sectors like telco, insurance, utility, etc. You can turn your data into value for other sectors yeah? or governments, and that's yet another area where where companies uh, can work on. Yeah? However, this is much less uh, developed. And it's only only starting. Yeah, that that's from the the company perspective. So uh, there are so many reports about the top ten use cases in the different industries, and it's all about optimization, chatbots, social media understanding, uh, social listening, marketing, etc. So I, I don't think I can add a lot of value yet yeah, to that specific uh, list. That's what what's happening. If you look at the social perspective. A lot of things are happening, but actually there are very little things are happening for real. So as you said, I founded in Telefonica a big data for social good initiative that took our data that we also package and sell to customers to do the same with humanitarian organizations. Because what happens in the mobile network is a proxy of human activity. We use that today, as I said, for understanding better mobility restrictions in COVID. But it also reflects uh, the impact of an earthquake in certain areas of flooding. And it also can help you to understand, for instance, the, how child poverty is uh, distributed amongst a country. So there are many ways that you can use this data for social purposes. The problem is that most of those things are like pilots. They demonstrate that it works, but there is no appetite to invest in infrastructure and in keeping the things running 
And actually, I'm very much wondering why we could have built a system using mobility data to be much better prepared for this particular virus. We could have known in advance before it enters a country in which directions it would propagate or even in which to which country it would go. The technology existed before. A lot of people knew about it, but there was no appetite whatsoever to invest in that in advance. Yeah? So that's the big challenge of using this kind of technology outside a business context. So if there's no immediate return, companies will not do it. Governments, they should want to do it, but I think they're lagging behind in terms of digital uh, transformation and knowledge to be able to do that. So huge opportunities, but in this part, we're only starting. Yeah, so it seems like the technology is there. What's holding us back potentially, Richard, is the need for more collaboration between the different players, so between industry, between academia, and, and potentially between governments. Do you agree? And then how can we be more ambitious and, and drive more collaboration in the industry? I think I'm more positive now because the world has suffered so much from this crisis. I think their uh, governments have need to run quickly to do things with technology. I think they only did like 5% of what they have could done, but at least there is now much more awareness that actually technology can help in those difficult problems. And I see a transfer of this thinking to climate change because in climate change, it's also a huge problem has been, uh, I mean, I think got a bit less attention because of COVID, but now it's coming back very strongly. And with the learnings that governments have around COVID and the potential of technology, I think there is now more interest and appetite and awareness of using technology also for for climating. So I'm positive, but it still needs to happen. And what is your assessment, I guess, on the European Union and what we've done as a continent for AI in climate change and for AI in the fight against COVID in comparison to what other continental players like North America, like APAC have done? If you compare it in terms of COVID, then I think all countries in the world have come very late to use technology to fight COVID, except for China and South Korea. China because, actually China and South Korea, because they gather personal data from a government perspective anyway. So they just needed to put it into use. Yeah? So that's a privacy thing where in Europe, there is a very different perception and uh, valuation of privacy than in the Eastern countries. Of course, South Korea is a democracy, China is less a democracy, but still both think that the community goes before the individual. In Europe, it's completely the opposite. First the individual, then community, and of course also the community, but not violate, etc. And that has led to, for instance, the contact tracing apps in Europe, which were privacy preserving. There was a lot of hype about it many months ago uh, with PPPP, uh, etc. I think all of them failed in any European country. There was not enough uptake or applications didn't work or they were not integrated in the health system, etc. So very low uptake. And in the end, only thousands of cases were detected rather than hundreds of thousands. Yeah. So I think that's from COVID. Of course, you can't say what is better or what is worse. In Europe, it's very scary that once governments have this information, they will use it for other things, yeah? as is happening in China and, and to some extent in, in South Korea. It's all about uh, trust. Now, if you look at from a generic or a general AI perspective, definitely there are different 
approaches eh, in the United States, in Europe, and in China. If you look at the uh, United States, it's not so much a government thing. It's basically eight, eh, eight or about 10 companies yeah, that have all the power of AI and are now starting to deliver services, yeah? facial recognition. You can get it in Microsoft. You can get it in Amazon. You can get it in Facebook. So they're offering this kind of service because they have a huge amount of data. They can train their algorithms, etc. It's a company play yeah, with little governmental intervention. If you look at China, it's the opposite. It still are the companies who are doing the things, but they are completely directed and supported by the government. So on the one hand, you have hardly any government intervention. And in China, you have a huge government intervention. And if you look at Europe, it's kind of in the middle. Yeah. So there is a lot of effort on companies that should become more advanced, should uptake this technology. Europe should generate more of this technology rather than only import it. But on the other hand, uh, it should be sustainable. Yeah? It should be human-centric. So this is the what the European Commission calls the ethics yeah? guidelines for uh, trustworthy AI. So it's not only about doing it as quick as possible and as, as best as possible. It's also doing it as fair yeah? and as transparent as possible. So there is a, something else in the mix with the objective to keep the trust of the citizens and the consumers who in the end need to use this kind of technology. So there's definitely a different approach. And then there are many discussions with which is better or which is quicker, etc. Obviously, if you look at the, the, the large in the world, America, yeah, US is still leading uh, the pack with a difference because all the digital platforms in the world, the big ones are all from there. Europe, hardly any. In China, some are coming from the three big companies over there. But of course, we are still on the journey. Yeah? Nobody knows how it will develop, etc. Yeah, and, and talking about the US, I, I see they've released a report very recently on the you know military and defense spending on artificial intelligence and how that needs to be increased in order to compete against China, who want to be the powerhouse in AI by 2030. And the report speaks about battlefields now being algorithm versus algorithm. They talk about autonomous weapons. And, you know, there is a lot of concerns, I guess. You've mentioned things like privacy on the other scale, security. So there is definitely valid concerns there. How do we make that step above those concerns to be able to roll this out at an increased pace? So, yeah, if you talk about uh, using AI for warfare, that's a big thing, yeah? So to give a very short answer, I only see something like a non-proliferation agreement, a global one, where countries agree what they can do and what they cannot do, because otherwise it's going to be an arms race. Yeah? The difference is that if you have a, a nuclear arms race, it's very hard to build a nuclear bomb, and only few countries can do that. But it's not so hard to build an autonomous weapon. I mean, you buy a drone, you buy a, a gun, and you have some programming, etc. So the democratization of this technology compared to other dangerous technology is really an issue. And I think the only way forward is to have global agreements. I recently was, or recently, I think last year, I was at the seminar of the Spanish military about artificial intelligence. And they spoke about those kinds of machines. And they said, of course, we always want to have a person in the loop. If you want to drop a bomb or a shoot or whatever, it never can be a machine. It always has to be a person with a judgment 
But then they said also, but if some countries do it, we cannot afford not to do it. So in the end, we probably will do it. And on a separate track, those things are ready for sale. Even if governments say they want, don't want to use it, you can still buy them already yeah, on arms fairs, et cetera, because, I mean, this development is, is continuing. So it's tough, but it should be a global agreement in order to work. So outside of the warfare one, then, when we talk about, as you mentioned before, AI bias, potential gender, race discrimination, privacy concerns, what scares you most or what concerns you most outside of, uh, of this? I think the, the problem of bias, the problem of explainability, I think they are all solvable. You can use, uh, like you have technologies like privacy by design and security by design. So while during the design of those projects, you can take measures and you can do checks that, for instance, your data maybe should not have sensible variables. Yeah, It should not have race. So you can use it to learn training algorithms so it might discriminate against race. If you don't have sensible variables, but you have proxy variables that might correlate very highly with sensitive variables, you can also remove them. And then once you've trained your algorithm, you can actually check against them. Yeah? So there are all kinds of things that you can do. Black box algorithms, there is a lot of research going on that is trying to open and make it a white box. So maybe you can inspect how it will. Maybe it's not standard today, but there's a lot of research going on. Governments are investing it. I think in five years, this might be a solved problem. So those are big issues now. Companies can be cautious about this with methodologies. And in the future, there might be technological solutions that come as standards. Yeah? What is less controllable is how AI, because of its capacity to automate tasks of people, will impact, let's say, the financial sustainability of societies. So AI, there is already this inverted pyramid with an aging population. And uh, I don't think there are yet solutions to solve that in terms of uh, retirement, how to make it sustainable. And AI will make that problem even bigger yeah? because it's not only about the aging uh, of getting more people retired, but it is also about what happens if AI automate some of the tasks and will remove some of the jobs. Of course, there will be many more new jobs because this technology revolution is going so quickly that uh, there probably will be some types of jobs affected. And uh, the question is, what will the people do who are doing those jobs? So that is something that uh, is under discussion right now. And, and I think this is something you speak about in your book, The Myth of the Algorithm, Richard, is the future of work and the redistribution of labor that will happen with AI. So if we can dig a little deeper into that, you know, what jobs will we lose? What jobs will we gain? What new roles will we have in organizations? And what skills should people listening to this now start to strive to attain? Yeah, okay. So let me first make very clear that, so in the book, we try to look at AI and its impact on eight different important areas of societies and work is one thing. Yeah? And what we try to do is to distinguish between facts and science. So this is what we know. Fiction, this is what many people say, but actually there is no basis for that. There's no scientific base for it. And then there is opinion. So what might happen? And it's just an opinion. So I have an opinion. I'm, I'm saying many opinions here. Uh, but if we speak about the future of work, what will happen is an opinion. And it can be very distinguished opinions of many famous people, but they remain 
opinions. Yeah? The fact is that current AI technology is good at automating certain tasks. I'm not speaking about future AI, which might be more powerful, but that still requires significant breakthroughs, scientific breakthroughs that are not occurring today. So current AI needs a lot of data. If you don't have a lot of data, it doesn't work. Secondly, it needs to be a stable task, more or less always the same. So if I know, want to predict what customers are leaving my company, well, that's something that's happening every month, more or less in the same way, so I can learn from the past about the future. This is exactly why there are no programs, AI programs that make you rich on the stock market, because it's not stable. Who could predict that the COVID would be there, or who would predict the financial crisis, or who could predict that Trump is saying something? So you need a stable process. If you don't have it, it doesn't work. And then you need to be able to relate very simply the output with the input. I can show you a picture of a cat and another cat, and you can learn, okay, there is an input-output relation. I can learn that. If you have to do problem-solving or reasoning, which we are very good at, but current AI is not doing at all, you cannot automate it. So lastly, it should be repeatable. It should be something that is repeatable all the time. Now, there are a few more characteristics, but you, from a scientific perspective, you can analyze what kind of task can be automated, and you can look at what kind of tasks form part of what kind of jobs, and then you can make a prediction. Now, and those predictions, a few of them have been made by different uh, studies, uh, looking at maybe thousands of jobs, looked at the tasks they exist, and they come even to different conclusions. Yeah, But there will be an impact. Very globally, so jobs that require interaction with people, flexible interaction with people, that require creativity, that require strategic decisions, that require very difficult movements, but those are hard to automate in the near future. Jobs that don't need interaction with other people, that don't need a lot of strange movements, uh, they can be automated. Yeah. So in the, in our book, we refer to some work by Kai Fei Lu. That's some a guy who wrote a book on uh, AI, China, the United States, etc. And he distinguishes interesting uh, between cognitive tasks and physical tasks. And then he has four categories. Let's see if I remember. One is uh, at risk, jobs that are at risk. Another one is jobs that are not at risk today. Then there is a category he calls uh, human veneer. It's a very thin layer of people that you need always to do it. Yeah? Everything almost can be done by the machine, but you need somebody to communicate. If you look at the restaurant, everything can be automated. But if you have a luxury restaurant in the end, there has to be a person who seats the people and who asks them for the food they want to order, etc. Whereas you could yeah, completely automate it, but it's a different experience. Yeah. And then there are tasks that are hard to automate, but over time, probably we could. Those are four quadrants, and you can do it in the cognitive part and in the physical part. And you get an idea of what kind of jobs are safe and not. Psychiatrist, for instance, is safe. Taxi driver is maybe not safe, etc. Yeah? And then, of course, apart from that, but that's common sense, what you need for the future is the four Cs. Yeah? You need creative thinking, critical thinking, collaboration, and communication. Apart from, if you want to have an important role within AI and data, probably you need also some technical skills. How would you recommend people? So I think a lot of the things you mentioned there, creativity, critical thinking, people can get that that necessarily don't have technical skills. But you mentioned technical skills is, is maybe important within this realm. 
So for those non-technical people out there, me amongst them, Richard, how would you advise these people to upskill in order to survive in, in this new world that is around the corner, essentially? It's thinking about the four C's and yeah, make sure you, you have the four C's. And I mean, you don't have to be able to program to understand AI, even at a deep level from a conceptual perspective. If you understand it from a conceptual perspective, and that's why we wrote this book, because it allows people without technical knowledge to understand what is true and what is not true, or what is half true in all what they read about AI, then you still can take the right decisions yeah, and have the right knowledge to have an important role or be a decision maker in this field. But if you're starting to study, I would suggest you take a few, maybe an undergraduate in the technical part and then postgraduate in the non-technical part. Yeah, and I do think having the technical and the business people is so important. What I always say is that the domain experts within companies are as critical within AI and machine learning as the actual data scientists and machine learning engineers. So it is emergence of, of both skills and tasks in order to achieve what we're looking for to gain value from AI. Yeah, so you need to have both. Huh? I mean, that was the, the original ideal picture of a data scientist. Yeah. So data science skills, programming skills, domain skills, and communication skills. Yeah, hardly you find nobody with such a rich uh, profile, but you can actually build teams where you bring together those skills. And that works. Uh, I mean, that's a must to do it in the right way. So it's about technical skills and then about usage skills. So it's not only business. Yeah, It can also be, let's say, I know, social or based on purpose, but it's about creating value with those skills in the right way. Yeah, I think there is a lot of fear in the world about how AI will automate jobs and there are statistics out there. But I think the most important thing to remember is the amount of jobs we'll lose, we'll lose will be dwarfed by the amount of jobs we'll gain from this. And so people just need to follow some of the, the sage advice that you're giving, Richard. Outside then of the future work, can you talk about a few more of the myths involved in AI? Well, I think one of the myths that is a common myth amongst uh, many people is that current AI is actually intelligent from the inside. But what we, we should not forget that if you have a system that recognizes, uh, that is able to diagnose a cancer in a photo or a COVID from a thorax uh, x-ray or recognize a face even of criminals, etc., such a system has no clue what it is recognizing and doesn't know anything about cats or criminals or faces or noses or eyes just see some pixels or whatever it is sound um, bits etc there is no intelligence inside yeah? so the behavior is intelligence because if we would do it it requires intelligence from people so that's one of the myths and that means that people start to associating things or aspects to a, a current AI program it doesn't have. And that is what makes it scary. Yeah? So a current AI machine, and even this is again an opinion, yeah, but in the forecoming decades, a machine doesn't have an intention. It doesn't want to do bad or good or whatever. It just does what it has been trained for. And that can have a disastrous impact as the famous paperclip example of uh, Nick Bostrom, but not, not necessarily. Yeah. So. That's one of the myths. Yeah. From the outside, it looks intelligent. So we think from the inside, it look it, it must have intelligence. That's the, the famous Turing test 
of the 19th, uh, 1950s or 1960s that is still very prevalent. Combined with the science fiction movie, movies, there you have the, yeah, the cocktail that this myth is all around yeah, and that scares people. Computers will take over the world and we will lose our jobs. They will enslave us, etc. Uh, from a company perspective, the myth, current myth that actually companies are doing wrong is they, okay, let's start doing this AI thing because everybody is doing it. And actually, they start to hire people, they start to invest, uh, etc. And actually, they find out that, okay, now we need some data for making it work. And then it takes maybe one and a half year or two years to get some serious data. So you can't just start with AI because everybody starts. It's a journey. You have to take it seriously and you have to do it step by step and make some investments and especially take care of the data as an asset. And that's something that, well, if you need it, you will find it because you won't, especially if you're a large company that is not a digital platform by birth. It's not a native digital company, but it's a traditional company like a telco or like a bank or like a utility company or like public administration. It's very hard to get the data. And that's one of the things that I have in my new book, in my second book, is the kind of mistakes companies make on this journey. And a second myth of companies is that, okay, let's do some deep learning because deep learning is the most powerful thing. And uh, But actually, sometimes a very simpler, much simpler algorithm, like a decision tree or random forest or whatever, will solve the problem sufficiently uh, okay to do it, to solve the problem, to do the job. But because everybody speaks about deep learning and even data scientists like to do complex things, they complicated things too much for what they really need. So those are from two perspectives, you know, different types of myths or mistakes that society and, and companies make. And so, and I definitely do want to touch on a data-driven journey and, and your next book and how organizations can structure themselves in order to, to glean value from AI, glean as much value as possible from it. Before I go on to that, Richard, I'd like to create a lot of positive atmosphere again. So we spoke a lot about myths, potentially challenges. Talk to us about the truths. Talk to us about what you've achieved at Telefonica that you can stand on a stage and say, this has been incredibly successful I strongly advocate for you to jump into this journey. There is a company perspective. I think uh, one of the most important statements that Telefonica made already in 2012 is data is an asset. Data is not an exhaust of your operation. It's an asset. And as such, it needs to be managed as an asset. You manage your financial assets. You manage your real estate assets. So you have to manage your data assets as well. That's one thing very important. But of course, a statement is a statement. yeah. And then how you implement it in an organization is still a very complex process and many journeys. Yeah. The next important thing, which can some, take some years if you are there, is to include data in your strategic plan. In the strategic process of budgeting every year, you have to make visible how much you invest in data, how much you think to get out of data, and that is recorded yeah? in our company that made a huge difference from before and after because suddenly it exists. Otherwise, it was just a bunch of people who did interesting stuff, important. But apart from that, it was invisible. Yeah? Make it visible in the official company processes. And then you get the next uh, boost, boost of this kind of things. So those are very important steps. And then identify a chief data officer as a company is yet another statement. Yeah? And sometimes, so 
this is the order it happened in Telefonica and other companies. If you know, you start maybe with a chief data officer and you pull it from there. Specifically, what I do in, in this book is what are the decisions companies or organizations have to take on their data journey yeah, to create value from AI and data. And uh, because even though many companies don't take those decisions explicitly, they do take those decisions. Yeah? So it's better to take them knowing what the options are, options are, knowing what the benefits are, what the disadvantages are, and make a deliberate decision. You can still make an error in your decisions, but at least you're prepared for what is to come. And from a personal uh, perspective, I think one of the things I'm most proud of in Telefonica is creating this area of uh, big data for social good. That is leveraging the power of data, not only for business, but also for society. And uh, I'm seeing this trend uh, now moving forward also in the European data strategy, where there is a part of business to government data sharing, where actually, if there was more data available, governments actually could take much better decisions. Yeah, And not only better decisions, but also monitor their decisions and act on the decisions once they are taken. Because oftentimes today, a government takes a decision and have to wait maybe three years to see whether their unemployment measures or the education, etc., were right or wrong. Yeah, three years or even five years. If you use big data, combining open data from public administration with privately held data from companies, you can actually monitor your decision and adjust it on the way. Same for climate change. Same for health, for air quality. Etc. So that's something that, that really needs to happen now. It needs to be sustainable also from a business and financial perspective. But as I say, it's not only about profit. Yeah? It's actually about people, about the planet, and I would say rather profit prosperity. Excellent. And so should more companies formulate a department internally, big data for social good? And, and how can we inspire companies to do this? How can we show that it is more than, than profit and prosperity and that planet is, is just as important. What I expect will happen in the future, if we, if we do a fast forward for five, 10 years, then this will be part of normal business operations. There's no need to have a separate department because the world will evolve in, in this kind and it will in the end build business. When governments realize that they cannot reap the benefits of this without investing, like they invest in anything, the governments are the big spenders, yeah? of the world, uh, but they're reluctant to spend on those things because I think in general, they don't get it yet. They will. So once that's done, it becomes business as usual. Another positive thing is there is a trend in large organizations, especially large companies, uh, to become increasingly more responsible. Yeah? So there is there was always the financial report, which is obligatory to publish. Now it's already uh, compulsory to publish your non-financial integrated report where companies report on their carbon footprint, on their human rights. Some companies report on their artificial intelligence and ethics strategy and governance. So in that sense, there is a trend to become more responsible. And that will also help to that's the creation of such areas where you not only look at hard profit, but also out social benefits uh, will emerge also naturally. Yeah? Now, for the companies who want to, let's say, make this, yeah, accelerate this whole ecosystem, those companies need to set up such a department and really show that it works both to governments and to other companies across sectors 
so they see actually it's not something philanthropical is something that is actually essential and the future of business will be responsible. And what do you say to the people, Richard, that are concerned that AI actually generates massively high carbon emissions and that some deep learning neural networks uh, can be detrimental to the environment? Yes. So like always, yeah, this is called green algorithms. And accidentally, so the Spanish government launched its national AI strategy in December last year. And they have a specific area on green algorithms. Yeah. So with Odyssea, we were working on an area where first you, we uh, want to measure the carbon footprint of algorithms, but physically measure, not estimate, physically measure uh, what the energy consumption, and then understand which kind of algorithms, uh, like deep learning or support vector machine or decision trees, consume more areas and even look at certain fragments of code where you might have spikes of energy consumption. So learn from that and then uh, turn that into a prescriptive methodology, something like green algorithms by design, when technical people design or adapt eh, or develop those algorithms, they take not only into account how the algorithm performs from a performance perspective, but also in terms of its carbon footprint. Uh, because so far, that was not the case. Yeah? I think there is, there's going to be an awareness of a footprint. Even this thing that we are now recording, yeah? which probably some things we record in the cloud or the thing we record locally, we don't care about, or we're not aware of whether there's a different carbon impact of one thing or another. We just look at, okay, how can we get the best recording? So that is a general process that will take still many, many years that even when we buy a car, it's not about only about the car, but it's also about its footprint, etc. Yeah, and I think a lot of what we're speaking about is trends within the general industry, Richard, where things are moving. It's an iterative process. At times previously, it's been a slow process, but I do think, as you say, it is definitely accelerating. So Richard, if we were to have this conversation in, in five years' time, in 10 years' time, what will we be talking about? Let's try to cast our gaze into the future here. I hope we would be talking about all the benefits that has been generated using this technology across different sectors and societies, and not so much about the fears or the risks. And I would also hope we are on our way to solve the difficult problems of societies and the planet, like climate change, like the distribution of wealth, because AI can both can help going both ways. Yeah. It can increase the digital divide or the wealth divide. It can increase even the climate change problem, but it can also improve it. And as we said, all of the challenges, I think, are definitely being worked on as well. And there's sometimes the media paint this very tricky, challenging, scary picture. But as you say, these challenges are being alleviated. There is an unbelievable amount of positives that will come from AI. So Richard, conscious not to drag this interview on too long, so are there any words of wisdom or words of positivity you'd like to end with? Speaking about wisdom, I would like to stop with a quote. It's a quote that is about data. It said, information is not knowledge. Knowledge is not truth. And truth is not wisdom. If you use these technologies, always try to do the best. Yeah, Use your criteria. And this is actually a quote from Frank Zappa. It's half of the quote. There is another part of the quote which is less applicable. 
but I also use it in my second book. <laughs> Excellent. And tell us, when is that book out, Richard? When can we read that? On July 15th. It's going to be uh, published. Excellent. Will we be able to buy it online? Yes, of course. It's, so you can already buy it. It's in pre-sales. Excellent. Looking forward to reading it. That's called A Data-Driven Journey. Richard, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining. Best of luck with the book launch. Best of luck with everything else you've got going on. And um, stay safe. Thanks for joining. Okay. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. And bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in. For more Future Says content and to watch all episodes on demand, visit alter.com forward slash Future Says. We'll see you again next time.